China on the Final Frontier, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. So much to talk about today, including a long and fascinating conversation with space journalist Andrew Jones. I don't know anyone outside China who knows more about what the Middle Kingdom is doing and plans to do in space. I think you'll be impressed. Crew Dragon is still docked with the International Space Station as we complete this episode. We'll talk with Jason Davis about this big step toward astronauts once again riding U.S. spacecraft into orbit, along with more big news from Jason. And Bruce Betts will get politely dressed down for the wording of the Space Trivia Contest question that will resolve this week. His accuser is someone who ought to know. We begin delightfully with senior editor Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, a couple of things for us to cover in this, uh, this brief segment. And I want to start with the first line in your blog post from March 1st. Mars could have given us a break, but it didn't. What are you about here? <laughs> it's the same old story, isn't it? Yeah. So um, Insight landed in a spot on Mars that looked absolutely perfect for the mole. It landed inside this sandy hollow, which seems, seems like a bowl full of sand. It should be absolutely perfect for it to be able to put this little heat probe in down about three or five meters in order to measure the rate at which heat propagates through the soil and the rate at which the heat is emanating from Mars's interior. Well, it turns out Mars had other ideas. There <laughs> appears to have been a rock buried underneath where they placed the mole. And, you know, the, the team anticipated this and their design is supposed to be able to push aside rocks that are small or kind of wiggle around larger rocks. But it, it seems to be having some pretty serious problems actually getting in place. And there was an update on Twitter this morning that um, they're actually going to stop and reassess the situation for a couple of weeks. Wow. Well, to paraphrase, or with apologies to Robert Heinlein, we know Mars is a harsh mistress. Do they have alternatives? Does this mean that the mole, which I suppose is already dug deeper than anything ever has before on Mars, that it might be completely stymied? Well, it might be, but there's definitely no reason to give up yet. Engineers are resourceful. I'm sure they will be trying lots of things. And hopefully one of the things that they try will get them past whatever obstruction this is, and they'll still get that mole buried deeply enough to do some good science with it. They actually don't have to get all the way to five meters. They don't even have to get all the way to three meters. As long as they can bury the probe beneath the surface to some distance, like even a meter would be uh, really great. But they do have to get it completely buried. And right now the top of the ball is still protruding from the surface. So that's no mm. good. All right. Let's move way farther out into the Kuiper Belt, where there has been a, an interesting scientific conclusion from data gathered by New Horizons. Yeah. So New Horizons uh, observed both uh, Pluto and Charon and then passed by MU69. And all of those bodies don't have uh, very many craters on it. They have fewer craters than anticipated. That leads to the conclusion that there are fewer impactors out there than scientists thought. Fewer small bodies in the Kuiper belt wandering around to cause impacts, impact craters. They think that the smaller bodies in the Kuiper belt, rather than smashing into and disrupting each other, actually smashed 
and squished together, flomped together. And that term flomp is actually, um, <laughs> it actually appears in a lunar and planetary science conference abstract at the meeting I'll be attending in a week or two. Um, flomping and blorping are two new <laughs> terms in Kuiper Belt science that I'll be excited to tell you more about after I see those presentations. Great new technical terms. I, I hope we can uh, get one of those patented summary reports from you on all the great stuff you'll be hearing at LPSC. You definitely will. Thank you, Emily. She is our senior editor at the Planetary Society, our planetary evangelist. That's Emily Lakdawalla. Let's keep it within the family now and go to the Planetary Society's digital editor, Jason Davis. Jason, welcome back. As you know, when I asked you to come back on the show for a quick update about Crew Dragon, we didn't know that we would be getting this absolutely jaw-dropping. I mean, my mouth really was hanging open when I saw what has now been returned from Hayabusa 2 and which you wrote about just this morning as we speak on March 5th. People can see it at planetary.org. Tell us about this video. Yeah, so uh, we knew Hayabusa 2 touched down successfully on Ryugu. What we didn't know is what all that looked like. And um, Japan Space Agency was kind of holding out on us a little bit. Um, they, they held back some cool pictures from one of the cameras on the side of the spacecraft that was there uh, to photograph, take, take still images in succession as the spacecraft was going down to touch the surface. They finally had a press briefing. You know, it's almost been two weeks after the touchdown and they released that video and it's, it's, pretty much exceeded all expectations of, of how and cool how. that would be. Yeah. The sample horn sticking down from the bottom of the spacecraft touches the surface. And when it does, um, the bullet fires inside the horn to collect the sample. Material from the asteroid just sprays everywhere. It really, it's like it created this giant <laughs> cloud of uh, debris in the middle of space. It's super cool to watch. And that debris, it's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. They, there was some concern. They designed the spacecraft uh, for finer-grained material, and OSIRIS-REx is actually dealing with some of this, these same problems, too, because they assumed that there would be a lot of regolith on these asteroids, kind of like there is on the lunar surface, for instance. But it turns out when you get down to these small asteroids, um, it's a lot more gravelly than um, they expected. So they did tests in a laboratory. Um, the Hayabusa 2 scientists did some tests and determined that, yes, the experiment would still work, even if the gravel chunks were a little bit larger, and um, they're pretty much expecting they got a good sample from this. And it is amazing also to watch, even as Hayabusa pulls away from the asteroid and gets pretty far away, there's still some of the, there's still some of this debris yeah. that you can see close to the spacecraft, thanks to the low gravity. Yeah, yeah. You know, and someone asked me this morning, did any of that, did that debris escape? Like, did it leave oh. orbit essentially. And you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I believe the escape velocity there is like less than a mile per hour. So the way that some of this stuff is flying, I would assume it escaped the, it won't fall back to the surface, but um, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> New human asteroids. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what we want. Yeah. Human created asteroids, more debris in yeah. space. Yeah. Uh, let's bring it much closer to home, but also very impressive uh, images and video. And that of course is Crew Dragon. How's it going? Yeah, so Crew Dragon uh, is now docked at the International Space Station. It got up there uh, this weekend. Um, everything went kind of according to plan. Um, to recap quickly, this is SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft that will actually carry humans. So it's got seats in it. Uh, it had a mannequin in it in a SpaceX uh, spacesuit named Ripley, which was pretty cool. 
a little <laughs> nod to the Alien movies. Yeah, it got up there. Uh, this is its uncrewed test flight. It got up there, docked successfully without much of a hitch at all. And it's uh, staying on station for about a week and is going to come back down uh, on Friday morning. So, so far, so good for SpaceX and Crew Dragon. Yeah, that little uh, plush toy Earth Buddy <laughs> does, doesn't look nearly as threatening as the alien. Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, apparently at the last minute, Elon Musk or at least somebody uh, at SpaceX, with his permission, um, threw in this little Earth plushie and it's been tumbling around the capsule. And um, now the astronauts have taken it uh, out and they're playing with it on board the station. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, the company that makes these things sold out of them, and they're now backlogged uh, through April. Um, it's become a rare collector's item now. Pretty cool. <laughs> if only, if only SpaceX had tipped them off. <laughs> yes. Or, <laughs> I suppose this is good news. I mean, assuming that the reentry and recovery of the of the capsule uh, is just as successful. That this is uh, good news as we look toward the next Crew Dragon with those two NASA astronauts in it. Yeah, uh, they have been really visible throughout this whole process, watching the launch, and as they should be, they're going to be riding on one of these things um, later this year. And um, yeah, as far as we know, um, that is still scheduled to happen no earlier than summer, but um, people are predicting the launch will slip a little bit. But predictions still say this year we'll see astronauts fly from uh, Florida for the first time since the shuttle program on one of these. So it's pretty exciting time for NASA. Two very exciting updates. Jason, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Jason Davis is our digital editor and our embedded reporter with uh, LightSail 2, which we will continue to talk with him about. If you've recently read news about China's accomplishments in space, you may know our guest. Space journalist Andrew Jones has written for others, but we hope he now thinks of the Planetary Society as his online home. His real-world home is Finland, where he lives with his young family. And that's where I reached him not long ago for a long-overdue review of the ambitious efforts underway by the nation with our planet's second-biggest economy. As you'll hear, China plans to be in the forefront of exploration and possibly more. Andrew Jones, thank you very much for joining us on Planetary Radio, or perhaps I should say Shishe, uh, <laughs> one of the few bits of Chinese language that I learned when I made my one and only trip to China back in 1985. I think things have changed a little bit since then. <laughs> Welcome, as I said. Well, Matt, thank you very much. It's um, a pleasure to be speaking to you and quite surreal after listening to you for so many years and being enthralled by your uh, radio show. Well, thank you. I, I do know that you are a longtime listener to the program as well, and, and that's something I'm very grateful for too. Uh, one of our many sophisticated, knowledgeable audience members. Your knowledge, of course, lies in a particular area, at least it's your specialty, and that is the activities of still a relative newcomer to space, although not in terms of their first uh, uh, satellite in low Earth orbit. And we will get to talking about the Chinese space program in a moment. But but first of all, how did you become interested? That's quite a long story. When I was a child, when I was like four years old, I saw like this big floor chart of, it must have been Voyager images and pioneer images of the planets. And it kind of blew my mind that those things were out there. So I became really interested in space. But living where I did, um, growing up in, in Wales, I didn't really have many 
outlets for this interest in space. So, you know, after reading all the kids' library books and, you know, seeing the odd documentary on TV, I just kind of ran out of places to go with it. So I kind of forgot about it for a long time until actually having our first child. I actually started thinking about, okay, became really introspective and thought about what kind of things impacted my life. And I realized that space, just having this interest in space from a young age and kind of following vaguely had given me kind of a, a kind of interesting perspective on on life, I would say. So this is something I wanted to bring to any kids that we had, you know, if they're interested. And so I became more interested in, in space and started following again what was going on. And actually, this is going to sound ridiculous, of course, but finding the Planetary Radio podcast on iTunes was actually, <laughs> um, well, I'm sure there was other podcasts. Uh, finding the Planetary Radio podcast was very helpful because unlike just reading articles here and there, and there's so many different sources, the fact is that you actually take the listener through what's actually going on in planetary exploration, what's happening in the solar system every week. And that really helped me to kind of engage and become interested in space again. There was a period when I was working as a, a journalist where there was actually no guidance on what we should be doing, which was quite a strange position to be in. So the Rosetta mission was, was happening. So I just started writing about Rosetta. And then not long after that, um, I was asked if I would write about China. So I said, well, I don't really want to let go of this interest I have in space. So I decided to see what the Chinese space program was all about. I discovered that there was so much going on with the Chinese space program, which wasn't being um, reported or reported comprehensively. So there's bits and pieces here and there and lunar exploration be covered, human space flight plans, these these kinds of things. But I, I was stunned by how much was going on. So I just decided to try to find out what was going on. And there was some great sources and resources out there like NASA Spaceflight and Emily Lokdawala giving the updates on what's going on with the Chang'e missions and things like this. I just ended up falling down a rabbit hole and then thinking that, well, maybe, you know, if I follow this and try to report, then it might be of some use. It certainly has proven to be of use. And we are very proud to know that you are now contributing more or less regularly to the Planetary Society website, where your work can be found at planetary.org. And we'll be talking about some of that work in, in just a moment. Has it become any easier to learn what is happening within the, the China space program? Well, the Chinese space program and all its actors are quite labyrinthine. So learning the names and the organization set up and how policy is made and key actors, that's that's very difficult. And I come across new things all the time that I pick up and learn and kind of try to incorporate in, into my understanding. There there are limits because the Chinese space program is, is quite opaque for, for a number of reasons. So there, there are limits to what you can know. And even if you do have some contacts, there's a limit to what you can ask and what they can say. It's it's quite challenging. So even following something like a, a moon mission. So we, we had the, the Space IL launch recently um, on the SpaceX uh, Falcon 9 launch. There's press conferences, there's a press kit, and they're giving a, giving a timeline for what's going to happen and when and when there's going to be a, a maneuver to adjust the, the orbit and so on. But <laughs> with, with a Chinese mission, it's kind of looking for clues and detective work all the time. So everything about it is quite challenging, but at the same time, it can be quite fun. Have you, in fact, developed some personal contacts uh, who are knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the program? Uh, I mean, you don't need to identify them here, but are, are some of them, does some of them prefer to uh, 
remain uh, unnamed, incognito. Oh, I couldn't possibly say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if you look at the science side of the Chinese space program, then you would find that there's a tendency for, for some people to be more open than they would be, say, on the the more national security side of things, where they just really can't talk and it's just best if they don't. So, yeah, it's possible to make contacts, but a lot of the time it will just it will just be something which can help your understanding off the record rather than something that you can report. Uh, well, we can ov- obviously hope that uh, as China China successes multiply uh, around the solar system, that uh, this will become easier. In the meantime. Again, we're we're happy to have you uh, staying on top of this as much as anyone probably can. Let's talk about what's in the news, of course. I guess we have to start with that exciting mission that is uh, right now exploring the far side of the moon, which is a, a, a pretty uh, impressive effort. Uh, tell us, what's the current status of uh, Chang'e 4? And so the, the U-2-2 rover is in a standby state for its so-called noon nap because the um, potential issues from high direct solar radiation and also maybe vision issues related to the sun being high in the sky over the landing site, that's going to wake up again, I think, on March 10 and then go back into hibernation for the, its third lunar night on March 13. In the meantime, the, the lander will be carrying out its, its science objectives. I think it was yesterday that we got new images from the rover, which show a close-up view of some rocks, which it came across on its path towards the, the, the northeast from the landing site. The scientists at the Chinese Academy of Sciences are promising updates on, on what they're finding regarding the, the origin and composition of these rocks. So that's something to look forward to. But we're not really getting many regular updates, and it's a bit disappointing in a way that we're not seeing so many images. And if you remember the Chang'e 3 mission, there was this huge dump of fantastic high-resolution images from Mare Imbrium on, on the near side, which um, I think the Planetary Society made them available. You took them from the, the Chinese site and, and hosted them on the Planetary Society website, and that proved to be very popular. So we might have to wait a while before these new images from the far side are released en masse for, for the public to see. Now, in spite of that, and, and yes, I believe you are correct about those uh, being available at uh, planetary.org. I'm sure they're in our Bruce Murray uh, Space Image Library that people can find there. In your piece that you uh, posted at planetary.org on February 7, it's titled Stunning New Images Show What the Chang'e 4 Mission Has Been Up To. These are stunning missions, uh, images. I mean, the video that China made available, and you show uh, where the little rover has had traveled by that time. But there are also these images from the spacecraft that are above the moon that were part of the mission. Um, I talk a little bit about those and, and how well that orbiter that was absolutely necessary to be able to communicate with Chang'e 4 because it's on the far side. Right. So you mentioned the, the blog post. We should give credit to Phil Stook for actually doing the hard work and mapping out where the, the rover has been going relative to the lander and everything. He does amazing work. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a lot going on above Chang'e 4. So of course, we have the Chue Chiao relay satellite. We actually got to see some images from the the camera, which they they have on that. And that gives a, a really unique perspective on the moon and the earth from this um, earth moon Lagrange point at which the 
the satellite is orbiting in a in a halo orbit. I mean, that's really something to kind of take a look at and get your your head around. On that satellite, there's um, an instrument which is a cooperation between China and some institutes in the Netherlands. So that's actually just been turned on and everything seems healthy with that. They're going to slowly deploy three five meter long booms, which will be used for low frequency radio astronomy, which will be a, an, another pioneering effort for the, the Chang'e 4 mission. So th- these are going to be deployed slowly over the next few months so that they can work out the interference coming from, from Earth and so on and try to get measurements. So they'll be looking at the Jupiter system and the sun. And also, if everything goes well, they'll be trying to get a look at the cosmic dark ages. You mentioned this uh, in your blog piece at planetary.org. It sounds like this is also uh, fairly unprecedented from from the way you're describing it. Yes, this kind of low frequency astronomy can't be done within the Earth's atmosphere because of the ionosphere blocking out low frequency radiation. So this is something new again, but it's not the best possible scenario because um, the Chiao relay satellite needs to see both the Earth and the lunar far side at the same time. So there's still the interference from the Earth and all the electromagnetic activity that comes from there. So there's actually a very similar instrument on the Chang'e 4 lander using, again, three five-meter booms, which will be carrying out similar objectives. There could be some very interesting observations from our solar system and from beyond Yes, and th- there is a, a terrific part of this video that you have posted in, in, in the blog that shows uh, one of those booms being deployed. It's, it's really pretty cool to watch. There is also, I, I didn't know this until I read your, your piece, uh, that there are some uh, other satellites, a microsatellite or two, that were uh, also part of this mission, and, and they're, they've begun to do their work. Yeah. When the the relay satellite was launched back in in May 2018, um, some six months, six or seven months before the Chang'e 4 mission was launched, so they could get everything up there in position and and fully tested. Also aboard that launch were two small microsatellites. I think these are about 47 kilograms each. They separated from the launch vehicle at the same time as the relay satellite. And while Chuechiao performed a breaking burn and went beyond the moon to this uh, Lagrange point. These two microsatellites were intended to use their own propulsion to enter lunar orbit. Longjiang 2 actually managed to, to perform this, but Longjiang 1 was lost a short time after, after the um, translunar injection. Incredibly, they, they had two cameras on this. So one was a small imager developed by Saudi Arabia, which returned incredible images last summer. But also they have a smaller student-developed camera, which teams in Harbin in the northeast of China are sending commands to to take images of the, the moon or even the earth in, and moon in, in the latest images. And these are being downloaded by amateurs, amateur radio enthusiasts on the earth. The Dwingaloo Radio Observatory in the Netherlands, which has been tracking this mission and also downloading and releasing these images. So it's um, a tremendous piece of cooperation and innovation. And also it kind of shows how much they're trying to squeeze out of this one mission with the launches. So not only going to the lunar far side, but also trying low frequency astronomy using these small microsatellites as 
not only interesting and exciting in their own right, but then also these are kind of test beds for using microsatellites for astronomy placed maybe in other Lagrange points down the line. So it's it's kind of like um, we had the the Marco satellites that went with um, with the Insight Lab. So it's yeah, it's kind of um, it's a part of that small satellite revolution, which is going to bring, I think, a lot to planetary exploration and um, astronomy as well. And there is a spectacular image taken by this so-called microsatellite uh, of the moon with a, a small Earth in the background, uh, our little uh, not-so-pale blue dot in this particular shot, which you've uh, put in the blog post. There's one other image that I want to call attention to because it uh, may be one of the few things we can point to that shows any level of uh, collaboration between the United States and China. Not even sure if this counts as collaboration. You probably know the image I'm talking about. It's the one that was captured by uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. Absolutely. It turns out that in the background, there was contact between NASA and the Chinese National Space Administration, which is kind of overseeing the, the China 4 mission. The Chinese side provided the landing coordinates so that the on the NASA side, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter could then plan for imaging the, the landing site on its part as it passes over the von Karman crater on the lunar far side. What we see in, in the blog post is an image taken off Nadir from an angle which shows the, the crater wall of von Karman and then down there somewhere, you can just see these tiny arrows pointing to where the lander is. So I think that was taken on January 30 or 31. And then on February 1st, there's actually new image which shows the landing site from almost directly above when LRO made its next pass. If you haven't seen that yet, that will be in a, a new blog post, which hopefully we're publishing on Wednesday. Oh, excellent. So uh, probably just shortly after this program becomes available. So, you know, most of you who are hearing this, uh, it, it may be at planetary.org by the time you hear it. Even these images, particularly this one, this long shot with those, those tiny little arrows pointing to the couple of pixels that are Chang'e 4, it is quite a spectacular image, a reminder of, of the beautiful work that the, the U.S. Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is doing. China certainly is not going to rest on its laurels. It has very ambitious plans. Uh, what's just ahead in this lunar exploration program? Well, that's the big question. And it's been getting um, a lot of attention, I would say, in the, in the space community as to what China is intending to do next and why, and perhaps how the rest of the world should respond to this. Actually, if I, if I could just go over quickly what China's done so far, because of course, what what you can see from looking at what they've done and how they move on to the next stage, it kind of gives an idea that this is comprehensive and systematic program which they've embarked on, uh, which is designed to develop new and greater capabilities and move on to more complex missions and greater goals. All of this started in in the early 2000s when the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program was established. In the first days, they decided on a three-step program, which would start with orbiting, followed by landing, and then moving on to sample return missions. So Chang'e 1 came in 2007, and that orbited at a 200-kilometer altitude around the moon, analyzing the topography, the geomorphology, the composition, and so on. 
when they made Chang'e 1, they made a backup in case there was any problems with the mission. So because Chang'e 1 went well, Chang'e 2 was used for a more ambitious mission. When that launched in 2010, I think it was, the uh, orbit was a um, 100-kilometer circular orbit, gaining a greater resolution. But then it went to do a flyby of a near-Earth asteroid named Totatis. That kind of demonstrated new capabilities for the Chinese to travel to different areas in cislunar space and and to if you're kind of more looking towards military capabilities these were so maybe you could say that this is um, provided the or demonstrated the possibility for intercepts so moving on we had Chang'e 3 which was the 2013 landing on the near side after that was successful they moved on they decided to repurpose Chang'e 4 the backup for the lunar far side what follows this is the sample return phase. So that will be Chang'e 5. So if the Long March 5 rocket can be proven to work again with its return to flight in July, then around December we will see the Chang'e 5 mission, which is quite a complex mission in its own right. If Chang'e 5 is successful, if it lands on, I think it's near Mons Rumka on Oceanus Procellarum, and manages to return, I think it's up to two kilograms of samples back to Earth. If that's successful, then they've completed all the goals that they've set out to do in their lunar exploration program. Having developed these capabilities and proven that they can land on the moon, I think it was in 2016 where they first stated that they are looking to develop a comprehensive lunar exploration program for the next two decades, which would then lay out new targets and new missions to target different areas of the moon and to develop capabilities which would then in the 2030s make it possible for human spaceflight missions to the moon. Another of your blog posts, which we'll put a link to on this week's show page, people can reach from planetary.org slash radio. You posted this on January 23rd, and here is uh, scrolling down a bit, this this timeline, which traces exactly what you have been talking about. I, I, what is next here? There's a Chang'e 6 and an HX1, both of which, at least on this timeline, are, are listed as happening next year, 2020. So the next stage for the lunar exploration would be to target the South Pole. So that would be two to three missions or depending on whose presentation you're reading, three to four missions by around 2030. Chang'e 6, which would be the backup to Chang'e 5, that would be a sample return mission, which would then head for the lunar south pole. Following this, they would send Chang'e 7 also to the lunar south pole. And this will be based on the, the Chang'e 5 and Chang'e 6 uh, lander. But this will consist of five parts. So they'll again have a relay satellite, and this will pro probably be a new relay satellite with new capabilities. It would also have, a, well, as well as the lander, it would have a rover and also what they're describing as flyby robots. My understanding is that this would be kind of a one-time shot where they could say if they land at one of the areas which could be considered the peaks of eternal light where you have almost constant solar illumination. They would also be interested then in the permanently shadowed areas where there may be water ice. So you would use this flyby robot to then go and analyze these areas for water and, and volatiles. Of course, the presence of that water, which is now very nearly confirmed, I think most scientists believe it's, a, it's assuredly in these permanently shaded areas, 
that has been sort of a lunar holy grail for many, many years. Absolutely. So these goals which they're laying out aren't exactly new. I think that the kind of international scientific community has laid these out as being of tremendous importance for quite some years now. It's not something new that China's wanting to do, but the fact is that they could actually be the first or among the first to do this. And following the Chang'e 7 mission, this would be followed up by Chang'e 8, which would again have science objectives such as um, carrying spectrometers and neutron and gamma ray detectors and so on. But also they would be looking then to test 3D printing in lunar gravity, also in-situ resource utilization tests, again looking forward to, to the next step with the idea of establishing what they're calling an international research base on the moon, which sounds a bit like the ESA moon village. Yes, th that's exactly what I was going to say, uh, which is something that uh, Jan Werner, the, uh, the head of ESA, the European Space Agency, has been talking about for several years now. You include one of their artist renderings of this uh, research base. It is very, very impressive. Well, it's certainly ambitious. I think to get this kind of infrastructure up to the moon, this again requires new launch vehicles. So China's working on something called the Long March 9, which would be something like 100 meters tall, uh, 10 meter diameter, plus what are effectively four Long March 5 rockets strapped on. So this, mm. this, this would be something in the class of the Saturn V or the SLS. They would need to get that working to make this happen which in itself is uh, a very challenging and ambitious project. They're making clear that this is the goal that they have. So they're calling it international. So the base would be modular and would be standardized so that other nations could come and get involved in this project or cooperate to some extent. But the one thing I, should, I would like to point out, China likes to talk a lot about international cooperation. A lot of the news reports highlights how Chang'e 4 has four international payloads and how they're open to working with European Space Agency and, and so on. But I don't get any indication, either with the Chinese space station, which could be launching the first module as soon as next year, and with this research base, which they would plan. I don't get the impression that they want cooperation so that another country would be involved in the, the critical pathway of anything that they're doing. So they can come and add on to what's going on or they can launch experiments alongside, but it seem, it's not like that you would have with the International Space Station where you have Canada or that you have Europe providing the, the service module for the Orion capsule, for, for example. I mean, those place countries in an absolutely crucial role within these, these projects. But with China, I think that they want to maintain control themselves as far as they can. Ignoring uh, the evidence presented by this image from the, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which you know was already there and not too big a deal to grab this, uh, this impressive shot of Chang'e 4, do you see any evidence on either side of a thawing of this uh, pretty cold relationship between the United States and China regarding uh, space exploration? I, I mean, China did not participate in the International Space Station, and uh, there's not much indication that the United States will have uh, involvement in any of these future efforts. 
my understanding is that the Chinese side, they make noises that they definitely want to be cooperating. That that would be something which would, in many ways, benefit them in terms of prestige and technology and get them involved in these big international space projects. At the same time, there are people within the space program in China who actually would see cooperation as something which might slow down China with regard to its own objectives. But I I think that that's a minority and they probably don't have the say over this. Terrestrial politics is the, the dominant factor in all of this. So at the moment, the Chinese-US relationship is not really in a place where there appears to be a way forward. Actually, at the International uh, Astronautical Congress in, in Germany back in October, Jim Bridenstine and his Chinese counterpart, Jiang uh, Kejian, they actually got on well on stage and they met on the sidelines and there was some level of discussion about, okay, how can we improve relations? The fact is that Congress decides at the moment what level of activity and cooperation NASA can have with Chinese actors in the space program. Although we've had a change in the in the Democrats taking over the House, I don't see a situation yet where there would be any change in Congress's stance towards um, effectively preventing NASA from engaging in any hmm. serious bilateral exchanges with China. Well, what about Chinese domestic politics and uh, uh, current economic difficulties in China, although they just announced a a growth rate that is still pretty impressive compared to the West, uh, with these very ambitious plans for the moon and elsewhere, how much might domestic politics and the economy affect these these plans? Uh, I, I mean, I'm looking at this timeline that puts this this lunar station on the moon roughly in 2030. Uh, are they going to be facing the same kinds of internal challenges that ESA and NASA face? I think that the Chinese space program has, since the late 70s, has had strong political support. The leaders have understood that for China to regain what they see as their place on the international stage, they can't be behind in many aspects of cutting edge technology and that includes space so it's it's all it's had great support for a long time it looks like they're taking a strategic approach to putting resources into space exploration and looking to the commercial side of things and potentially using space resources either through asteroid mining or space-based solar power so that they're taking a very long-term and strategic view at things it's very hard to say how much the economic situation will affect the Chinese space program because we don't know how much their plans are based on projected growth and what growth they need to sustain these. And we don't get to see the budgets, so we can't see how things change and how they're being affected. So it's very difficult to tell. As you say, the Chinese economy is slowing, and I think it was last year around 6.5% following two or three decades of near double-digit growth. But at the same time, last year, they added a trillion dollars to their GDP. So it's really hard to say, is this going to be something which slows them down? Before we wrap up, take us out beyond the moon, uh, because China has plans for the rest of the solar system as well. So you referenced this deep space exploration roadmap, which was posted in the blog. And this came from a presentation to the United Nations, to one of the one of the space congresses in, in Austria. 
what we can expect is next year, if this Long March 5 rocket is operational again after its July return to flight, it will launch the Chang'e 5 mission, of course, but then it will be used next July or August for launching China's first independent interplanetary mission, which would be to Mars. And that is rather ambitious for a first time attempt because the Mars mission will include an orbiter and a rover in one go. So they have the challenges of executing an interplanetary mission for the first time, entering Mars orbit, which is no easy feat by itself, but then going through entry, descent and landing and pulling that off. Yes, we have learned, of course, that that is one of the hardest things to do uh, in space. Well, indeed, NASA is the only one that's managed to do it. So it's going to be yeah. interesting next year. Well, in early 2021, when we have all those missions from ESA and Russia and United Arab Emirates as well, I, I believe. So that would be very interesting to see. Um, China, as part of a Mars exploration package, which they have, they would look to follow that up with, again, an extremely ambitious mission, which would be a Mars sample return. That would be launching around 2028 or 2030. That depends on this Long March 9 super heavy lift rocket. Beyond that, they have their eyes on a Jupiter mission, which from the early design discussions that I'm aware of, this would be an orbiter which would target a particular moon, but also have general science goals to analyze the, the Jupiter system. In between there, they're actually developing some concepts for asteroid missions. So for a long time, they, they had one which would involve flybys and even landing on two or three asteroids in, in one shot. But there's a new proposal out now which hasn't been approved, but this would travel to a near-Earth asteroid followed by returning leaving samples and then using a gravity assist to head off to Mars for another gravity assist to head to a main belt comet. Wow. So similar to the Rosetta mission. <laughs> it's a tremendously exciting mission again. And that mission was, I think they, they were using a provisional name of Zheng He, who was um, a eunuch admiral from the 14th century, known for his um, exploration of the, the Indian Ocean and the Horn of Africa and so on. I've read so, about him. That This is the, the guy with those gigantic ships that dwarfed the European uh, caravels of the time, right? A very impressive explorer during that that great period of exploration for China. Absolutely. And that, that's, a, that's a very interesting name. I don't know if that will be adopted, but it got me to thinking that those, those ships and the exploration that they carried out, they were ended because they were seen as being very expensive, a uh, big drain on, on resources. It's kind of interesting to think what they could have achieved if they had gone on. I mean, imagine how history would be different if they had, say, discovered America. Yes. Enormous fleet. It certainly sounds like China is uh, going to be giving you plenty to keep you very busy for, for years to come. Indeed. As we can see, this is all very ambitious, but the challenges are going to be very large regarding funding, regarding technology and engineering. So it's going to be very interesting to follow in the next few years to see how they get along and also what we can learn from the solar system as all of this unfolds. And I'm glad that you will be there to uh, report on it for us, uh, for the Planetary Society. Just one more question, Andrew, before we go. How did a, a, a Welshman uh, space uh, geek end up in Finland? <laughs> um, 
that's a, that's a good question. No, I, I, I came to study in Finland a few years back. I wasn't planning on staying, but there was um, a lovely lady who um, convinced me to, to do that. So, um, yeah, here I am. So it sounds a bit strange that I'm doing what I do from here, but um, it's working for now. Good evidence of the global community that uh, we uh, are now on this pale blue dot. Andrew, again, thank you very much for this, uh, for taking us through the Chinese space program. I look forward to that next blog post, uh, which uh, may have appeared, as we said, by the time people hear this uh, this interview. Thanks, Matt. Great to talk to you. That's Andrew Jones. He uh, reports on the Chinese space program, largely for the Planetary Society. He is, as you heard, a Finland-based journalist. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at at AJ underscore FI. It is time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. And we have the chief scientist of the Planetary Society to uh, guide us through that. It's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Hello. <laughs> All right. I don't have anything clever, but we have something very interesting to say about the contest later. So go ahead. Get us started toward that point. All right. Pre-dawn sky party planets, three of them. Pre-dawn east going from super bright Venus, low in the pre-dawn east. Go to the upper right, you'll see yellowish Saturn much dimmer, and then bright Jupiter to the upper right of that, making a lovely kind of line going on in the pre-dawn. And Mars still hanging out in the evening west, looking uh, still pretty dim, but reddish and like a kind of bright star. We move on to this week in space history, 1969, the first solo flight of the lunar module on Apollo 9. We talked about its launch last week, but now we have the anniversary of it floating free. Uh, and there's actually a nice uh, Apollo 9 page on our website now if people are interested in getting some more information. And then uh, 2006, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter arrived in orbit around Mars and has been working great ever since. In 2015, Dawn went into orbit around Ceres. And that will come up again. I want to mention, because this is kind of a new thing on our site, and I think it's working really well. If you go to planetary.org and you have the menu just under Explore, go to Space Missions in that uh, drop-down menu, and you will see trending, hashtag trending missions. That's where you'll find a lot of stuff that's uh, trending. I, it's pretty exciting. I, I really like this new uh, approach on our website to missions. Yeah, we're building out all sorts of good... Uh evergreen pages, basically, with useful information. We move on to Random Space Band. <laughs> okay, I thought that was funny. Go ahead. <laughs> Yay! Very approximately, very approximately, interstellar space, uh, you know, between the stars and our galaxy, has about one hydrogen atom per cubic centimeter. Wow. Be hard to uh, start an explosion if you had maybe that and uh, two oxygen. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yes, this is why interstellar space does not burst into flames on a regular basis. <laughs> I did see a science fiction movie about that uh, that was made into a TV show a long time ago. I think, anyway, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Um, <laughs> the sky's on fire. <laughs> All right, moving along. I asked you, of the five dwarf planets currently classified as dwarf planets, which is the only one that does not have at least one moon? How'd we do, Matt? Let me first read this um, suggested correction to the contest 
from an interested listener who says, I presume your question was meant to be, of the five known dwarf planets, which are the only four not known to have an artificial moon? It was an understandable slip of the tongue on your part, so you needn't feel embarrassed. (laughs) Signed, the chief engineer and mission director of the Dawn mission, Mark Raymond. (laughs) Dawn, that's no moon. (laughs) Okay, I could see you could argue it's an artificial moon or an artificial satellite, and it is in orbit around Ceres. Uh, But yes, I was looking for natural moons, natural satellites, but we'll take either. And Mark would be proud, or I hope we'll be proud to hear that a lot of other people said, yeah, it's uh, it's Ceres, unless you count that little uh, emissary from Earth. Uh, Here's our winner, Frank Eisenach, a first-time winner from Germany, one of many listeners we have there, who indeed said it is Ceres, or Beltaloda, so to speak. Uh, Beltaloda, that's a fictional term out of that whole series of books and uh, now, of course, the TV series, The Expanse, which uh, I, I was turned on to by listeners, and man, is it good, and I cannot wait for it uh, to come back. It's uh, gotten picked up from the Sci-Fi Channel by Netflix, and I think it's coming back this summer. Anyway, somebody out there knows and, and will tell us. <laughs> Undoubtedly, someone out there knows. <laughs> Frank, congratulations. You've gotten yourself a planetary society kick asteroid rubber asteroid and a 200 point i telescope.net astronomy account jack davies is in uh, london in the uk he says every time you eat breakfast you might think about this mini planet or the goddess series she is the root of the word cereal i thought you'd like that i do very much and uh, with that we're ready for your new contest We're going to talk Hayabusa 2 that just uh, recently did its first sampling of another asteroid, Ryugu. And we've got a great article by Jason Davis about that on our website. Uh, What are the Hayabusa 2, what are its 5-gram bullets used in surface sampling? What are they made of? This is the surface sampling like they just did where they shoot the surface with a comparatively low-speed bullet and then catch stuff that comes off. This is not to be confused with when they do the much more crazed launching of a large copper projectile at much higher speeds to try to excavate the subsurface. So after all of that babble and specificity, (laughs) I will repeat, what are the Hayabusa 2 5-gram bullets made of? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. They're not made of Cheerios, are they? Dang it, now I need a new contest. (laughs) You have until March 13. That'd be Wednesday, March 13 at 8 a.m. Pacific time, because we only care about where we live. (laughs) And you could win yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid, and a 200-point itelescope.net account to do astronomy on that worldwide nonprofit network of telescopes Take a look at series. I bet you'll be able to pick it out. We're done. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite cereal and what it would look like floating in space. Thank you, and good night. My favorite cereal or the ones I'm actually allowing myself to eat now? (laughs) You're so disciplined. (laughs) They're magically delicious. 
Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its planet-wide members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro. Astro.